So Colossians, we're starting a new book. And let me just highlight once more uh, what was said at the beginning. Uh, these, these books are pretty great. I've, I've used them in the past. It's essentially the book of Colossians on one side and then a blank page on each. It's really good if you're planning on journeying with us through the book of Colossians for the next seven weeks. I would say, if you're thinking of that, you should grab one now and then pay later. That's what I think. Uh, because this is a good, worthwhile thing to have. Great for sermon notes, great for personal reflections. Uh, do, do check it out, okay? This is not some huge profit-making thing, just so you know. I just want to get God's Word into your heart and mind in as many ways as possible. So if you have one of these cool little books, or if you have an old-fashioned Bible, <laughs> um, then uh, Colossians chapter 1 is the section that we're going to be at. And I'd like to tell you... Uh, two stories, one of which I think you've heard before, because I, I mentioned it like, like three years ago. I've got this little file of like stories that I've told on Sunday mornings. I don't have that many. I'm not that interesting of a guy, so I don't have that many interesting stories. So if you stick around long enough, you'll hear a few of them recycled, starting with this one, all right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. Years ago, many, many years ago, I visited the campus of uh, Trinity College Dublin, um, and uh, I, I was there uh, because, you know, typical tourist stuff, you just, you want to see the sights, but most of all, the site that I wanted to see more than anything else um, is the Book of Kells. Perhaps you've heard of it, Ireland's National Book. It's a very old collection of four of the Gospels in an illuminated manuscript, and it is stored in the book of, uh, in uh, Trinity College Dublin in their library. And so there's a, a photo of it there. Um, maybe some of you have been there. Some of you have seen it yourself. Um, I remember being there, and uh, my little nerdy heart was just so excited that I was able to see the Book of Kells with my own eyes and uh, kind of paid to get in, queued to, uh, to get inside into kind of like the little um, visiting center, the gift shop area. And I wasn't really interested in the gift shop. I just wanted to see the Book of Kells. And so there was kind of like, you know, people crowded around, huddled around, looking at little exhibits or whatever. And I just, I, I zipped past them. Uh, and then I went into the actual library, you know. And, uh, and I saw um, off to the side, and the next slide shows this, um, a little display case. And in the display case, there it is, the Book of Kells. Wow. And there was no one else there. I just had some time alone with this, like, ancient, historic uh, book, the, you know, as far as, or one of the older collections of uh, the, the four Gospels uh, created on this very island. And I'm looking at it, and at the time, I, I kind of, I really want to emphasize, I dabbled in Latin. Uh, that means that, like, I downloaded, like, a worksheet and filled it out. <laughs> so, that's, so I was by no means, but I was like, oh, wow. And I was, like, trying to, like, you know, figure out the Latin and this and that. And I was, like, having this moment. And it was so exciting, and I was kind of waiting for other people to come when I'd have to yield my time with the Book of Kells for the next tourist. And there was no other tourist. They never came. I had all this uninterrupted time where I actually got bored and then left. I was like, well, I've had this momentous occasion with this old book and there's nothing left for me to do here. And then I left. Um, I told the story to some people later on and they said, hang on a second, the Book of Kells isn't in the library. The Book of Kells is downstairs in the gift shop. <laughs> and I said, what? And then I remembered everyone crowding around this like, you know, knick-knacky tourist thing, in my opinion, and I wasn't even interested. That was the Book of Kells. Upstairs was a facsimile. It was a replica of it. So I had 
all this special, like, I could, like, feel the aura of the, the ancient writer, you know? Turns out it was just, like, made by some college student for, like, a, I don't know, for, like, some history reports. Um, so I spent all this time, like, with the duplicate when the real thing was just down the stairs and around the corner. It's kind of a, you know, uh, low-impact uh, story. But did you hear about this? In 2014, police officers in Tenerife, Spain, they were alerted to the presence of a gorilla that is outside the Loro Park Zoo. And so the police sent a veterinarian over who thwarted the attempted zoo escape with a tranquilizer shot. The story spun in a different direction when the vet realized the supposed gorilla was actually a human in a gorilla suit. And, uh, and, then it, and then it goes on. It was part of a drill to train uh, the staff as to what to do if a gorilla escapes. Uh, the man recovered and, uh, and is fine. So there is maybe a danger in, in, in every age and stage, but maybe particularly in ours, um, when, when we can, with all of the like infinite options um, and all the various like worldviews, philosophies, and perspectives that you and I are able to access or we cross paths with people with various viewpoints um, that followers of Jesus can be unknowingly hoodwinked into being enamored by a facsimile or be entranced by a copy or even won over by, by a counterfeit. And so that's the story, and it's not just something that happens, you know, here and now. Um, also, it took place there and then. And, and that sort of is the occasion that prompted uh, the writing of what we call now the Book of Colossians. Uh, this is kind of a, a document. Uh, this is a letter where Paul the Apostle sets the record straight about Jesus of Nazareth, who he really is, what he really does, and what it means to follow the real Jesus. So there's a whole lot, I will, I could, I could, there's so much that could be said, but I've been assigned 14 verses, so I gotta, you know, get the, get the show on the road pretty soon. But in our day, there's this like milieu of so many competing views, and even just like different versions of what the good life looks like. And, and all of us want to live a good life and experience the good life. Uh, but Paul writes this pastoral letter to a group of people who he cares about and helps them to fix their eyes upon Jesus and then readjust their expectations of what the good life looks like as under his rule and reign. He reminds them, and he will remind us, about what is good and true and beautiful about the real Jesus. And I've found that when we set our eyes on the real Jesus, it gives us the strength to deal with whatever else is populating our lives. Um, last week, uh, we took a good long look at, uh, at another church of this era. Uh, we looked at the rise and fall of the Ephesian church, and you could catch it on Spotify. YouTube or calvarycork.org if you missed that or any of the previous messages. Um, and, and we learned that Paul spent more than three years in Ephesus. Um, he had this deeply invested relationship 
uh, with the men and women of, of that church. He raised up local leaders. He baptized many. He trained. He taught. He knew the population of the church there. And so when he writes them a letter called Ephesians, uh, he has this like deep personal relationship with them. I'm sure he's thinking of their faces and he knows their names. Uh, not so with the letter of the Colossians. What we're going to spend this week and the next six weeks going through is a city that, as far as we know, Paul never visited. He didn't start this church, and this could be the only official contact that they had from him. Um, Ephes- uh, Colossae is the name of the city. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It's also about 10 miles east of a city called Laodicea, which maybe you've heard of that city uh, before. And it seems that this church exists because of the work that was started in the city of Ephesus. Maybe you remember, you probably don't, that's okay. In Acts chapter 19, it says all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what was taking place in Ephesus. Remember, the Apostle Paul rented a room in a secondary school, just like us, the Hall of Tyrannus, and then had daily Bible studies. And then out of that long-term Bible teaching ministry, it said the whole region, maybe even 100 miles east, they heard about the gospel and people began to believe. It seems that um, somebody from Ephesus might have moved to Colossae. Maybe somebody from Colossae was visiting Ephesus. Maybe there was some kind of cross-connection. But somebody, the gospel got a hold of them, And they went and established this community of Jesus followers in the city of Colossae. It seems like Epaphras is that guy. You can glance at verse 7. It says there that they had um, heard and understood the grace of God in truth, verse 6. And you learned it, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he made known to us your love in the Spirit. It seems that Epaphras was the one who brought the gospel message to Colossae, possibly. And then also he is communicating back and forth between the Colossian church and the imprisoned Paul. He's telling Paul how the Colossians are doing, and then he is perhaps communicating this message back to them. So, they are experiencing a bit of confusion, a bit of, um, uh, they're wondering, what's the story uh, with, with Jesus? I mentioned earlier on it's possible to be enamored by a counterfeit. And see, it seems that in the Colossian city, there's a lot of different views and slants and takes on what the good life is and where Jesus of Nazareth fits into that. So I don't mean to say that people in Colossae are confused about whether Jesus is a good guy or not. Uh, People aren't wondering, is Jesus a hero or is he a villain? The goodness of Jesus isn't up for debate in Colossae. I'd also say it's not up for debate in Cork either. Like everyone in Cork like knows Jesus is a good guy. I don't think anyone would say that he is a villain. But their problem, which is maybe connected to our problem, is there's lip service or a vague respect to Jesus while not putting him in his proper place. I'm sure that they spoke in respectful terms about him. I'm sure that people in Colossae acknowledged that he was a wise teacher. Maybe even some admired him because he died for his beliefs. 
But it's not the goodness of Jesus that's in question in Colossae. It was the supremacy of Jesus that was under discussion. It was the identity of Jesus. It was the the sufficiency of Jesus. It's not, is he good, but is he good enough to get us through this life? So over these next seven weeks, we're going to be reminded that Jesus isn't just one more guru for us to learn from, uh, one more wise person to stream on YouTube to help sort out our problems. Uh, He's not one wise voice among many. He is the voice that silences all others. Uh, He's not just the best that humanity could offer, but he's God himself coming down to redeem and to rescue his people. We'll look at that in verse 14 eventually. It's not like he's a driving instructor, you know, who gives us the L-plate to put on our car. And, And eventually, after we listen to him enough, then we're able to outgrow him, and then we're left on our own to become fully mature, licensed drivers. He's not the transitionary coach that we outgrow. So we're going to call this series, and I think there's a slide that might come up in a moment, um, All of Christ for All of Life. Seven weeks uh, looking at uh, who Christ is, all of who he is, and then how that impacts all of who we are. I mean, we just sang that, and I love that line that we sang, My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. I love it. My life. All of me, my life, is hidden with Christ on high. All of Christ for all of life. We could say it another way. It's the real Jesus for the real us. Who is the real Jesus? Would the real Jesus please stand up? And then would we yield the real us to him in response? And so it's a a seven-week series starting now. And guys, I am here to be like the dad who pushes the kid on the bike and then sees the kid fade away. Um, not really. But I'm, <laughs> I'm starting this, and then uh, myself and my family, we're um, headed uh, for a break in, uh, in California. We have a, a funeral to attend, and then a seminary class to go to, and then a, a workshop to, to lead. So there's, there's things. I'm not going to be here for the rest of this series, but boy, oh boy, are you in good hands. So the elders and then some of the leaders from men's ministry are going to be taking us through uh, the rest of this. Here's my section. My section is this. <clears throat> how to pray, I forgot what I wrote, how to pray for spiritual growth. Uh, verses 1 to 14. You're right, Joe, you can't see the slide and you're, you're hoping that you're getting it right. <laughs> so how to pray for spiritual growth. I've given a little bit of an introduction. More could be said, but there's some great stuff about how to pray for spiritual growth that, that I think the Lord wants you to know. And so I'm going to do what I can to, to help these 14 verses get into our hearts and lives so that we can be those who not only pray for, but experience spiritual growth. Towards that end, let me try one. Lord, pray for my sisters, my brothers here. I pray that um, the words that I offer can be helpful and useful. Um, we thank you so very much that, um, that Jesus is as good as this book says he is, um, that there is um, no imperfection, no skeletons in his closet, uh, no character flaws that we have to put up with him, uh, but that he is the real deal. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the lion and the lamb. I pray that our lives, as we give the real us to the real him, can be conformed into his image and that you would cause growth 
to take place as we look to the real, not the counterfeit. Pray this in his name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. Paul's standard greeting, uh, he starts, uh, I believe, every single one of his letters by identifying himself and then wishing them grace and peace. Chuck Smith says that these are the, that grace and peace are the conjoined twins of the New Testament. Because you never see grace without peace, and you never see peace without grace. And then I would add that the order is important as well. Because first we experience the grace of God, and then and only then do we experience peace with God. First we're recipients of his grace, and then we're beneficiaries of his peace. We'll speak more about his grace in just a few moments. And now we come to the rest of my assigned verses. Did you know that verses 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek? And it has one big theme. It's Paul's prayers for the Colossian Christians. It divides into two sections. The first is shorter, and it's what Paul is thankful about when he prays for the Colossians. I pray these, and I'm thankful because of this and this and this. And then the longer section, verses 9 to 14, are prayer requests. He asks God to make these things more and more true in their lives. And so now we come to the first part, what Paul thanks God for when he thinks about the Colossian Christians. What does Paul thank God for when he thinks about the Colossian Christians? Let me read verses 4 and 5. And see if you notice what I notice. I'll start on three. (laughs) Might as well. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So in verses four and five, it says that he's thankful for their faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Uh, we, have you heard of that before? Have you been to a wedding? <laughs> have, you, have you read 1 Corinthians 13, where he famously says, these are important, faith and hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. Elsewhere, Paul uses that kind of triad over and over. So there's like conjoined twins and conjoined triplets here, faith, hope, and love. Um, I like how the NIV puts it. Uh, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So we have faith and love, and it seems that they are the result that springs out of the hope that they have, the confidence in the present and future goodness of God. Because of that future-oriented hope that they have in God, in the present, they're able to have faith and love towards others. Remember, Paul hasn't met them, one, met them yet, as far as I know. But he knew that their lives are characterized by these three essential Christian ingredients of faith, hope, and love. And what a reputation. Imagine if you meet somebody for the first time, 
and they say, I've heard about you. Like, oh, what have you heard? What about my, what, what do my cousins say about me? Or what is this? Or what is that? And they say, you know what? I heard that your life is characterized by faith and hope and love. Wouldn't that be great if your reputation preceded you in that way? <clears throat> have you ever walked into a room and smelled flowers before you could see them? Let me tell you, I haven't. <laughs> in some cruel twist of fate, the Lord God, in his kindness, gave me a nose that's bigger than most people's noses and works less than most people's noses. Um, I usually can't smell hardly anything. Um, and then COVID came, and then I could smell even less. But if those of you who could smell uh, could imagine what it's like to walk into a room and you smell something, oh, there's a flower in here, and then, ah, there it is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, those flowers should yield so sweet a perfume that their fragrance may be perceived by those who never gazed upon them. So it was with the saints in Colossae. And, and so the reason why they have such like a notable and prominent reputation that, that goes a hundred miles east, and I gotta assume goes a hundred miles west as well, that people know about their faith, hope, and love, well, we could find the answer for why at the end of verse 6. But don't look yet. Don't look, eyes up. Eyes up. <laughs> don't look yet. Before you look at the end of verse 6 to see why they're known through faith hope, faith, hope, and love, like, what could it be? Like, let's just think, what a good letter this is. Colossians is one of the rare books that Paul writes where there's no correction, there's no scolding, there's no rebuke. He only has praise for this congregation. So think like, what could be at the starting point for all that? I've seen a few of you glance down. Guys, I told you, don't glance down. <laughs> verse 6, the end of verse 6 tells us this. Um, the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as also it does among you, since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. Here's how the New Living Translation renders verse 6. <clears throat> he says, It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as how it's changing your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So it seems that their life-changing and characteristic triad of faith, hope, and love, Paul says in verse 6, it comes because you've been changed by understanding the grace of God. You've understand the truth about God's wonderful grace, and that has resulted in those wonderful three character traits of faith, hope, and love. You see, I think it's possible for us to understand God's grace. Oh yeah, it exists, and it's how and why he forgives. It's his favorable disposition towards, towards people. But I think there also is a way when we get God's grace, when we're truly apprehended by it, where it hits the heart and out of the heart impacts us, and we realize I'm a recipient of God's kindness, not due to my earning or my deserving, but because of God's initiating kindness. <sighs> we could breathe a sigh of relief. It seems that they had an encounter where they understood the grace of God in truth, and it impacted and changed their character. Here's some attempts to explain what God's grace is like. Uh, Warren W. Wearsby says this. 
I got to think, why did his parents name him Warren W. <laughs> when they knew his surname was going to be Wearsby, but it was before the internet invented, so maybe they don't know. So he says, grace is God's favor and kindness bestowed on those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. Or, Matthew Henry helps out by saying this, it's the goodwill of God towards us and the good work of God in us. Kind of getting to that it's not just this outward bouncing off us, but inwardly and, and changes us. And we'll let Lindsay Holcomb have the final word she says, grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to the restless. It's the unmerited favor of God. And, and I bet however many people are in this room, uh, those of us that have known Christ and been apprehended by him and, and have experienced the, the sigh that comes from realizing that it's by grace we are saved through faith, and that's even a gift from him in the first place. We can add our own definitions to this. But a definition is one thing, and getting it is another. And so because of that, I, I think here's a prayer request for you. Like, in just a second, we're going to get to Paul's prayer request for the Colossians. But I just humbly suggest that this is a prayer request for, for yourself, that you'd pray something along the lines of, like, Lord God, help me to understand the grace of God and truth. Um, I'm so prone to impose humanistic, transactional standards upon you. And the reason why is because my whole life, everyone has had a conditional relationship with me. People have said, I will love you as long as you do this, or I'll love you as long as you don't do that. Help me to understand and treasure the counterintuitive message of grace that's contained in your gospel. That's a prayer request for you. And so now we're going to move on to the, the other part of this section where Paul has some prayer requests for them. We're going to see what he prays for the Colossian church. What does he ask God to do on behalf of these people? Apparently, they're killing it already. Apparently, faith, hope, love, great. What else could you need? Well, Paul says, here's some more things that, that I want for you. So I've kind of arranged these headings in a, in a personal way. I've, I've taken out the word they and them and even Colossae, and I've put in a lot of uh, personal pronouns, you and your. And here's kind of one of the reasons why I've done that. Uh, years ago, years ago, I spoke to a, uh, a woman in this church, and she was telling me that when her kids were little, when her kids were young, she prayed these verses for her kids every day. And so I, 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 that stuck with me. Wow, what a great thing to pray for your own kids. And so hear this as a record of what the apostle prayed back then, but, but also, this is something that we could be praying for one another, even, even now. And in the past six and a half days, I've been praying for you uh, with these types of prayers in mind. So this could be an example or a template for you to pray for your friends, your peers, your kids, your community group, uh, those that you care about and want to see flourish. So verses 9 and 10, here's the, here's the heading. 
Pray to grow in your good works and your knowledge. It says this, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's start at the end. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, There's always more to learn, right? Or as uh, someone said to me, every day is a school day. I think it's because I'm annoying, and I'm always like, did you actually know? So Kean told me once, every day is a school day with you, Mike. Um, So uh, I'm going to take that as the compliment that you surely must have meant it. Like, what a treat to be able to learn. Um, So every day is a school day. There's always more to learn when it comes to increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, The word there for knowledge is the epignosis. So gnosis means knowledge. Epi means like a lot. (laughs) Deeply experiencing knowledge. Um, And there's always more to learn, increasing in the knowledge of God. But of course, I think think we get this. It's not just head knowledge, because did you see like a verse earlier where it talks about uh, spiritual wisdom and understanding? Spiritual wisdom and understanding, that's the goal, and that's going to include increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, So earlier this week, I had kind of my first evening get-together with a a group of young men who are leaders within this church, and we've started this kind of year-long journey through the book of Proverbs. We're considering what it means to gain wisdom, to avoid foolishness, and to live lives that are pleasing to God and helpful to our community. And spiritual wisdom is to motivate a person towards godly living. Uh, Here's a a verse from Proverbs. Uh, Speaking about wisdom, it says, Bind this on your heart always. So Proverbs 6.21 says this. Bind this on your heart always. Tie it around your neck. When you walk, they'll lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you're awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teachings are a light, and the reproofs of discipline are a way of life. See, the Bible doesn't really have a category for knowledge that doesn't lead to a transformed and a changed life. You know, it says that you're supposed to gain wisdom because this is the way of life. It's not just so that you can be good at pub quizzes or that you can say, actually, blah, 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 although I'm guilty. Um, so um, it's Christianity, it's not a thought experiment. It's not a hypothetical or a daydream. Like, there really needs to be legs on it. Again, as Proverbs says, it's, it's the way of life. There's a phrase, you know, the, the proof is in the eating, right? Is there anything that produce anything worth, worth eating? And so the other half of this prayer request isn't based on knowledge. It's based on bearing fruit, which you could sink your teeth into. Uh, and, and fruit, you see that there? Bearing fruit in every good work. Fruit is a natural consequence of like a healthy plant, a healthy pear tree, or a healthy coffee bush, or a healthy 
once I said coffee, I can't think of anything else. You know, other things that grow, you know, there must be, they must be, exist. Pomegranates, avocados, whatever. Um, fruit, it's the natural consequence of, of health. Um, it's, it's the end result of a vine or a tree reaching its full potential. Fruit is like literally the end result of that. I, I listened to a sermon this week. Um, I was driving in the car, so I wasn't able to like write down the exact quote, but a, a preacher from Singapore called Si Hai Tan, um, I butchered the name, I'm sure, uh, and he was kind of showing these connections between the idea of fruitfulness in the Christian life uh, and God's original design for all of humanity, kind of connecting this with what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So God wants good to beget good. And the internal, the invisible acts of faith and hope to show themselves in concrete expressions of love. And so that multiplies and fills the earth. Like fruit is designed to be self-replicating, you know? The seed of the next tree are within the fruit of, you know, it's like this wonderful, like great, like, Good job, God, that's really smart how that works, how, how it perpetuates and on and on and it multiplies and fills the earth. And so this bearing fruit in every good work goes back to even the very hope for humanity that we would multiply and good would be get good and fill the earth. So again, he prays that they would bear fruit, that they would increase in the knowledge of God, that they'd have this knowledge and this wisdom. Before we move on to the next section, I have to quote A.W. Pink. Um, saying that this request about their knowledge to increase. He says, The apostle here made requests for something intensely practical, not speculations about the divine nature, not prying into the divine decrees, not inquisitive exploration of unfulfilled prophecy, but the knowledge of God's will as it respects to the ordering of our daily walk in this world. He's like, there's a lot of mystery out there. And Paul cares about that, but he says, what I pray for you is that you know the next thing to do. <laughs> What's the next good step? What's the next right decision for you to make? And that is the least exciting, right? But it's also the most necessary ingredient for a successful life on planet Earth. Knowing God's purpose. Knowing his will for our lives. And so, we want to pray that we grow in good works and knowledge. And then also, more briefly, uh, that you'd grow in your endurance and your patience for the sake of the gospel. Growing in your endurance and your patience. Uh, verse 11 says this, uh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I don't have a lot to say about this one because I don't like either of these things, guys. <laughs> I don't like endurance. I don't like patience. And then when I was kind of like looking it up to find out like, oh, what's these Greek words mean? I like them even less <laughs> once I read and find out more about them. Endurance. It's the capacity to press through. It's, it's bravery that triumphs over adverse circumstances. It's like pushing through the hard thing. Patience is the capacity to withstand the wrongs inflicted by others without being provoked to retaliation. So someone else phrased it this way. In other words, 
These have to do with doing God's will in the face of difficult circumstances and in the face of difficult people. And so, may you, may we be strengthened with endurance and patience. And then finally, uh, that pray to God, pray to grow in your thankfulness for the gospel. Okay. Thanks, guys. We're going to have to get onto the school about removing that basketball. Like, who needs three basketball hoops? <laughs> Last two verses. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, like you've got to grow in your thankfulness for the gospel and the implications of it. Like just the good old news of, I am forgiven. I am not just put up with by the Lord, but he has made me qualified and fit, and he has transferred me from darkness into light. And because of Christ and his grace, I belong here. (sighs) Thankful for that. There's a gratitude that spiritually mature people have for their salvation. It's not taken for granted. Realizing that we've been delivered and transferred. I think, on the one hand, there's a way, in a very morose way, to constantly be like um, fixated upon the old way of life, or this or that, or even our own present um, struggles with sin or that. There's a way to focus on that too much, but at the same time, we should not forget what we've been set free from. Uh, this language uh, kind of intentionally seems to call back how, he, how God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, this language of uh, deliverance, especially in verse 13, is the same idea of delivering out of Pharaoh's deadly grasps and into the promised land. He brought the sla- Israelites out of slavery. He brought the Colossians out of their sin. And he brought you out of that which was entangled and was dragging you to hell. He's done the same for you. We were in the domain of darkness, but now, because of Christ, we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Remember, when you drive, you don't want to always be looking in the rearview mirror the whole time, right? Like, that's a sure way to get in an accident if you're only looking backwards. However, there is a rearview mirror, so you do want to glance there. You want to know where you're coming from. Uh, transferred into the kingdom of, of, that we're going towards. That's also just as important. We glance back into where we came, but we also realize we've been transferred into a new kingdom. Uh, the word for transferred, uh, this word is used by like non-Christian Greek speakers. Um, there's a historian that uses this word transfer uh, to speak about like a forced deportation. Uh, speaking about... You know, maybe you're familiar if you're aware of the Old Testament, the second half of the Old Testament, where the the people of Israel, of Jerusalem specifically, they're captured by Babylon and like the Babylonian Empire 
um, like against their will, deports uh, large swaths of people who live in Jerusalem into Babylon. You know, like Daniel and Esther, etc. Jeremiah. <clears throat> that's they're transferred from one place to the other. Uh, and that's maybe we might know that. Uh, I, I learned recently that also, like the Babylonian kingdom and then the other kingdoms that kind of um, came afterwards, um, just kept mixing people up. It's kind of what empires do. It's to keep people from having too strong of a, of a national identity beyond the, the empire. So what they did is they also, decades or generations later, they deported another group of Jews that were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then they kind of like, like carved off about 2,000 of them, and then they deported them to Colossae and said, this is your new home now. It's the same empire, doesn't matter to us, but we're going to deport you again, and you're going to be settled in Colossae. And so perhaps there's like this history of being transferred from one section of the empire to another, from one kingdom of the other, even within living memory of the Colossians. Is Paul drawing upon that to say, you know, just like how your grandpa was like drugged from one section of the empire to the other, God, he says, through the gospel, has transferred you from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins and so much more. And so, how to pray for spiritual growth? Well, I mean, we acknowledge what's there. We could thank the Lord for any evidence of faith and hope and love uh, that we see in our lives already by his grace and for his glory alone, realizing that the ultimate source of the character traits of faith, hope, and love that may be in you already come from acknowledging the grace of God and those things flow out of that wonderful recognition. And then we also have further requests that we can grow in good works and in knowledge Certainly not head knowledge, but the type of knowledge that motivates those very good works. We could bear fruit. We also can pray that we would have endurance and patience. And with just our eyes wide open, we can appreciate that we've been transferred from darkness to light because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may we grow like the Colossians in good works, endurance, patience, and faithfulness. Thankfulness. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for my sisters and my brothers that our hearts can be receptive of these things and uh, kind of acknowledge and have thrown like eight or nine homework assignments at them to pray for this and pray for that, you know. But Lord, um, through repeated encounters with your word, um, through looking at Colossians 1, even later on this week, um, would you prompt these types of things? Um, Lord, and I know that there's a, a powerful and a wonderful thing when your people pray along with your revealed will, that you tend to answer those prayers. And so, Lord, we pray in your will for these things to be more and more evident in our lives. Um, we pray for endurance and patience. We pray for thankfulness. Uh, Lord, we pray for the kind of knowledge that spurs and motivates um, good works and fruit-bearing, Lord. Lord, I pray for this church um, in these weeks uh, journeying through Colossians. I pray, Lord, for a mounting, Sunday after Sunday, each one being better than the rest. Um, thank you so much for letting me start this off. And Lord, may next week and the week after just go from strength to strength, from glory to glory. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.